You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. interesting things about the his, historical context that people put the play in is that the story of Coriolanus and that nobody can quite decide whether it's entirely apocryphal or if it's true or if it's a little of both or what but that it's generally held to be one of like the foundational stories in the early development of Rome into the you know world dominating thing that it was and it's funny that like this being one of the foundational stories of it is so reminiscent of like that those you know like periods when you look through like the history of the roman emperors where there's like a period of 25 years where they have like 38 emperors and it's all like you know, ascended to the emperorship by cutting a dude's throat. And then like six months later, you know, like murdered by his own Senate, you know, it's like clipped by his wife, you know, for, you know, like making his horse a Senator, you know, it's like, all that stuff. And it, and it's, it's sort of like it, the thing that's interesting to me about that is that it's always, you know, no matter how much you think that you've progressed and evolved as a society, there's always like that seed from the founding of like it continually defines who you are as a society and as a culture, kind of like how in America, you know, it's like we were founded by religious nuts with guns 400 years ago. And what do you know that we, we get, we got, you know, religious nuts with guns. Wow. Uh, Funny how that happens. Yeah. So anyway, that was like my little sort of like uh, uh, dramaturgical, kind of musings about this you know like violent military man who isn't fitted for politics but they kept on like in rome seemingly like trying to jam the square peg of like a successful military guy into the round hole of diplomacy and politics yeah i mean and and there's a self-congratulatory aspect as well of you know, Shakespeare writing in Elizabethan England or post Elizabethan, I don't remember, like, uh, but, you no, know, like I, in the, in the first decade, you know, because it was, um, there was a thing that I finally found what I was uh, uh, talking about the, um, that there was a, a peasant riot that is supposed to be the impetus behind the writing of Coriolanus which mm-hmm. was a known story. It was known in like Livy and Plutarch and everything. And, uh, and then, you know, the Shakespeare was like, Hey, why don't we do a play about this? Cause it's, it's topical. Yeah. Cause so uh, I, I just found it in my, um, 
part of Shakespeare that in 1607, there was serious concern over riots and other examples of popular discontent, social unrest and rebellious uprisings in Northamptonshire, Leicestershire and Warwickshire. And there was a Midlands revolt. Um, and it's basically all of the stuff that's about grain that they're, they wanted grain at their own price. And there was grain hoarding and there were problems with harvest. And so they didn't have enough grain and the poor people wanted the grain at charitable, charitable prices. Jumping off of that, um, what do we think about these two productions' attempts to make Coraline as contemporary? Because the like the Fines one is very, very much. Let's see how much we can mimic the present day, including the like Occupy movement kind of stuff. Uh, whereas the Josie Rourke production is a little less obvious about it, but. Well, I think what the Fines one does really well is that um, he's got a multicultural cast and a diverse cast um, and a cast of all different ages. And you can really see in the costumes like different levels of wealth, different levels of health. Um, and so and even just by virtue of having the giant crowds, you like those riot scenes look like riot scenes that you've actually seen on television. And so the society is much more recognizable. I mean, part of that is also the conventions of film that Fines uses, like the way they have, you know, the discussion about what do you think of Coriolanus is basically a panel discussion on television where they've got the actual guy who does those news current affair panel discussions. I can't remember his name in England is actually in the movie doing that. And they've got their political pundit voices on as they're doing that dialogue. And, you know, the, the news footage as a way of giving plot details instead of having characters say it is also very contemporary. Um, so he really grounds it in a context that makes sense and is part of our modern world in a way that Josie Works production is much more sort of suspended in time, that it's not, you know, it's not exactly modern dress, but it's not exactly Roman time either. We don't really get sets, so there isn't really the same sense of specific place it's much more more in the or what's modern about it is the way that the characters behave and the way that the citizens you know turn on a dime and the kind of the way that they worship Coriolanus at first feels like sort of very fangirl fanboy celebrity culture but I think finds I mean one of the things I think is really effective about finds is he really creates an ecosystem for the production, which you can certainly do on stage is something Nicholas Heitner does super well. I won't go too much into his Hamlet because, yeah, we know how much I love that. And <laughs> uh, he did the same thing in Othello. But I don't really think that that happened as much in uh, Josie Rourke's production. Not ne necessarily that's a bad thing, just that it's a more stripped down production. Well, yeah, and the, by nature of it being as stripped down as it was, I think that it's... Uh, the, the ways in which it suggests period are like very much that, like there are suggestions, there are allusions to uh, place and time rather than uh, literalist representations of them. Whereas, I mean, just by nature of the film being what it is, and also by the, uh, you know, that clearly finds wanted to take, you know, sort of like a, you know, pop verite approach to the movie by, you know, and going so far as to uh, have like Ken Loach and Paul Greengrass's DP shoot the film. Uh, so it has that thing that, you know, the, 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 that their, that their, that their films have of that, you know, like very like the, 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 the stab at docu-realism 
which just by its very nature spells everything out to a greater and more literal degree than the suggestive approach uh, that Rourke takes would be. And yet we also have shaky cam. I don't know how to feel about that on balance. No, but that's what I'm saying. It's like that shaky cam is supposed to achieve that end of the the docu-realism. And yet, and that's the problem is that it's supposed to, like everybody is like, oh yeah, man, I'm going to have shaky cam. It's going to be docu-realism. And then every time somebody sees a camera bump, it's like, oh, that's a camera being bumped. And it's, it's, it's gotten to the point where it's been overused to the point where it's become an alienation effect rather than something suggesting naturalism. I, I think the green grassy touches for the bite scenes, uh, you know, the combat scenes, uh, you, you know, that whole verite vibe probably worked against the film overall. I, I, I don't know if the text itself is meant to, to, to really have the battle feel that credible necessarily. Uh, it, it, uh, so I, I, I think it feels more of a distraction that doesn't really... Uh, contribute as much as I think they think it does. Uh, you know, I, I, I may be out to lunch on this one, but uh, I, I, I think it feels a bit too stark when, you know, it, it can't support that starkness. I mean, I actually think that one of the places that the shaky cam works is the battle scenes, but one of the things that you're, you're bringing up that is kind of interesting is this sort of trend in filmed productions of Shakespeare that have battle scenes to sort of extend the battle scenes. Um, Something that we were talking about in the two productions of Henry V on another episode that we had recorded um, is that both in Thea Sharrick's production and in Kenneth Branagh's production that they really, really extend the Agincourt scenes and they cut all the dialogue that happens on either side of the front and so that they can have these massive battles, big production. um, Also for Bill's Macbeth as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes, really a lot in 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 um, Kersel's Macbeth. So I wonder if that's if this is sort of part of that trend. But on the other hand, what's different about what happens in the Fines film is that you get a lot of character moments. I think in as he's going through that building and when and making decisions and and getting into fights and seeing people, you get a lot of information about what he's like as a soldier and what he's like in battle in a way that you don't in um, in the Rourke one. On the other hand, that's also subtextual. Like, that's not in Shakespeare's text. That's a lot of added time. But it does, I think, really help craft his particular interpretation of the character. The one thing I was going to say that I liked about the battle scenes and finds, because normally I'm on Alex's side. I regard the extended battle scenes as like, this is not why I'm here, guys. But in in the Fines production, I felt that it really worked because you got the, this sense that everywhere Coriolanus was, was a battlefield. There was no safe place. It wasn't like there was Rome and then there were places where Coriolanus was fighting. Especially that scene where they have the battle within the city and he's running through the apartment complex. You get the feeling that Rome is just as much of a battlefield as the place where Coriolanus lives, which is in the middle of a war. Totally agree with you. Uh, I, I, I would agree with that, uh, and that's why I'm fine with the shaky cam and the uh, political scenes. Uh, I, I, I think it provided a real energy there in those corridors. You, you know, it, it, it felt like uh, you know almost like some kind of you know very grim 
version of the thick of it. You could imagine uh, Peter Capaldi off screen, you know, yelling uh, swear words at, uh, you know, finds uh, political fuck ups. I, 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 I just don't know if the, the starker battle scenes really just, uh, I, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, sorry. I'm trailing off here, but, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't think Malcolm talk. I don't think Malcolm Tucker would like having to manage Coriolanus. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, Danny, it, go ahead. Well, I was just, I mean, I was just gonna say the thing about the 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 battle scenes in the movies of you know like Shakespeare adaptations. I mean, that always seems to me more uh, like a, a concession to the commercialism than it does like an engagement with the text of the play. And, you know, because I mean, because I don't think it's like people, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to direct a Shakespeare movie and put really long ass battle scenes in. And it feels more sort of like, all right, well, I'm directing a Shakespeare movie. So I guess the producers are going to want a long ass battle scene. All right, here it goes. You know, Um, I mean, that, that could be projecting on my part as somebody who would rather just be like, I just want to see good actors really cleanly speaking text. You know, but like, you know, more, you know, civilian, you know, moviegoers might, you know, be more just sort of like, nah, man, you know, it's like, I won't go and see this boring ass Shakespeare thing if I get to see, you know, it's like violence, explosions, blood, man. Honestly, I don't think that anybody's going to go see Coriolanus for the explosions. They're well, lost. Yeah, seriously. This isn't on topic at all. But like, there's this perception among people who don't read a lot of Shakespeare that Shakespeare is highbrow and inaccessible. And then the instant you read any Shakespeare, it's like constant dick jokes. Like. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's one of the best things about being an actor and doing tons of Shakespeare. is just being just like, oh, man, I have like five dick jokes per line. You know, it's like. Um, which is why, returning back to what you said, I, I kind of find it eye rolling when so much screen time is dedicated to these battle scenes, which are invariably shot in slow motion. You, you just think like. If this is how you're trying to make it accessible to people, you're just kind of being obnoxious and dragging out parts of the plot that aren't that important. Okay, so shaky cam question. What scenes do you think it really didn't work in or that it would have been more interesting to have not shaky cam? I think it was a bit overdone in the whole bits with the you know, the movement proletarian resistance cats, you know, who, you know, it's, it's like, all right, yeah, all right, you know, making it like a, you know, gritty movie about left, the leftist separatists, you know, so the camera's got to jump around all over the place. I mean, I don't know. It's like, it felt a bit overdone and, uh, eh, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's overall, it was just sort of like, all right, Ray, if you're trying to make Paul Greengrass's Coriolanus, that's cool, you know. I mean, I think one of my one of the things that I think is sort of a shame is I think Rafe really, yes, my buddy Rafe, um, really put a lot of thought and effort into how he blocked the scenes that they seem really, really um, purposefully blocked, especially when there's a lot of characters in the scenes, like when he's giving the speeches for Consul and I'm trying to think other th- other off- offhand um, and. That like that scene where he goes on television to say, you know, I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm totally not sorry, but they told me to say I'm sorry, and I said I would tell my I told my mom I would. So here I am. On the one hand, that plays in like a close up, and he's super he's pretty scary. But on the other hand, there's 
clearly a lot of interesting use of space with that within that studio and how he's kind of alone and there's a big crowd and he's distanced from the crowd. And you sort of get that with the way it's shot. But I feel like he put so much thought into those spaces and into how the actor is moved in the spaces and how they were placed with respect to one another that in some ways it's kind of lost because of the shaky cam, which I think is kind of a shame. I, I, I've got no issue with the shaky cam in concept. I mean, it's a little first time directory. I, I, I think if he could uh, pull back a little, that would have been fine. But I, 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 he, he had the right idea. I, I think if, if you're going for this, this gritty political version, you, you, you want an aesthetic like that. I just think he needed to, you know, know, know the uh, places to pull back slightly. What did we think about the blocking and the scenes between Coriolanus and Aufidius, which was completely different in both productions? Can you be more specific? Well, so in the film version, well, in both in both versions, there's that really extremely homoerotic line where, or passage where Aufidius says, you know, I was happy when I married my wife, but I'm happier now, like a lot happier. And I, w- I wanted to get people's takes on how the intimacy between those characters was developed through blocking because the, in, in the fines version, it's like really obvious. They constantly touch one another. Alphidius literally shaves him. Um, and there's this very, not necessarily erotic, but there it, it's like extremely intimate, but the blocking in Rourke's production wasn't as clear to me. I wasn't quite sure what they were going for. Yeah. I, I can see what you're saying. That the, the, there was overall more of a uh, you know a, a, a sporting vibe and the, uh, the 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 Corfidius dynamic, if you will, in the Rourke version. You, you, you know, uh, so so sometimes they really overcommitted. You know, like the like just just the full on kiss. You know, just just felt very uh, calling attention to itself. Uh, so I I think I preferred the more uh, you know generally mythopoetic touches in the, uh, the, 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 the finds, you know, bother dynamic. Well, and the one thing that I have to confess a, a bit of the extra textual interference with, uh, the finds Coriolanus was that having Gerard Butler as, as Ophidius is, is a bit at this cultural cinematic moment is a bit fraught with, uh, baggage as you will you know because you keep on imagining like the, the you know, terrible gerard butler movies kept on bleeding in to Ophidius when and it's unfair because he was doing good work in in the role but i just couldn't you know it's like a you know specters of P.S. I love you. Keep on drifting into the room, you know. And it's and 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 it is it it, it it's it's an unfortunate thing, and it's born of watching entirely too many movies. But that kept on lingering over over the the Ophidius business in the movie to me. See, see, I disagree. I I, I think the the extra textual dynamic of casting an actor like Butler there really helps with the uh, the the the. the you know, a top dog, you know, alpha dynamic that you you know kind of emerges once they team up. So I I I, I think it plays well as kind of a story in itself. Of you know, it, it feels more significant if you're t- taking over the dynamic with an actor like Butler compared to you know the dude who played uh, Ophidius in the Rourke version. 
I actually like that take better than mine. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you. I think one of the advantages of casting Gerard Butler is like his sheer size that you do get a sense of he's a threatening presence. And especially with Ray Fiennes' interpretation of his, as, you know, Coriolanus is a pretty scary guy. They make for a worthy opponents and also as pretty scary domineering people that, you know, a state should be probably pretty scared of that you want to keep them happy and stay in your good graces as opposed to making enemies of them because they, you know, are physically quite powerful. I think Gerard Butler does good work. I do think he's one of the weaker parts of the film, even though I think he's still good. And I guess that the Ophidius in the the Rourke production is in some ways more in line with the Tom Hiddleston one. Like they're both, you know, kind of smaller, younger, skinnier people. And so in some ways they're a good match. It's just that they're like kind of girly men. I I don't really mean like that sounds wrong. I don't, I don't mean that as like an insult, um, but they're just de- more delicate, I guess, than Rafe Fiennes and... Gerard Butler's characters, partly because they're younger and kind of like open faced, I guess. It's just it's a different dynamic. I'm not sure it's as good, but I think it's uh, or bad. I just think it's like a different interpretation. Well, it's something that's come up a couple of times here that I kind of I, I finally I, I think actually have the the words that I wanted to address this with is that the thing that I actually liked about the choice of casting Hiddleston in the role of Coriolan is within the context of who he is as a performer, like how we view him, what, what he's familiarized is that the thing about the role being a lot more like blunt and with there's, there's far less, in theory, it, it, there's far less of um, like uh, an, an inner life to Coriolanus than than normally Hiddleston projects in, in in his roles, and it is like you know somebody who's a lot you know we're accustomed to you know it's like when we see him doing violence that it's in a much more like you know kind of underhanded backstabby kind of way, and Coriolanus is very much like a hard charge and come right at you blunt object type of character that seeing Hiddleston stretch as a performer and using the physicality that he has, which is, as contrasted to Ray Fiennes, a much bigger, blunter, more traditionally masculine type of character, seeing Hiddleston just, you know, like, chomping at the bit and, you know, just, like, bursting with this kind of smaller man's need to overcompensate more made the physicality of his work as Corian Lin is kind of fascinating, really. Although, ultimately, it doesn't entirely transcend the, just the essential smallness and delicacy of his physicality, though, which I think, as a result, is unsatisfactory, but, like, as a process sort of thing, it was interesting to see him try that and pushing up against the limits the limits of what he's able to project as an actor. Um, so, I mean, it's like, I guess the, the, the shorter version of what I'm trying to say is that the ambition played a lot more interestingly than the result did. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I think I mostly agree with you. I think what's interesting about Tom Hiddleston is 
he's an actor with a lot of emotional intelligence. Not that Ray Fiennes isn't, but I think he, what he's done certainly with his Shakespeare on, on film, if we're going to call this Shakespeare on film is he'll take a character like Henry V, which is, you know, can often be played as a cold blooded killer and, and make him a human and lonely man. Um, and he sort of, in some ways, does a similar thing with Coriolanus as he tries to find the humanity in it, which is interesting for a play in which the whole problem with Coriolanus is he doesn't really have a lot of humanity. And it sort of works and it sort of doesn't. I'm sort of wondering what people think about his sawing the air because I have kind of mixed feelings about it. He does what's kind of sort of like rookie Shakespearean acting, like in the sense that he'll be, he like talks about a baby and then he makes a gesture of a babe in arms. And then he's talking about his painted face when he's covered in blood and he feels the need to like point at his face as though we didn't know what the paint was in the scene. And the first, at first I was kind of thinking that, Oh, this is like really, really, really bad. And, and give the audience some credit. This is, you know, rookie Shakespeare acting. But I think it's interesting because I think, Danny, you were talking about how his Coriolanus sort of has to overcompensate in a way that in part for like Tom, like Tom Hiddleston is tall, but he's not big. And so I wonder if some of that sort of sawing the air was actually kind of intentional because like Coriolanus doesn't know how to talk. And so his attempt to, I don't know, express himself becomes overly blunt. I don't know if I'm giving it too much credit. The, the thing about the, the, those particular kinds of gestures, it ties into something that I was uh, mentioning earlier about how a lot of things in that Donmar uh, production in the the approach to it was, I don't remember exactly how I put it before, but it was, you know, like actors using the tools of entirely physical theater to do a production where they actually have a text that they don't need to overcome. So, I mean, a lot of that redundancy in gesture seemed to me, and it played to me like the kind of thing that theater coming from a more physical-based tradition, uh, the way they do things in that kind of theater, as opposed to relying on the text in a more classicist way that, that, that I think it... Is more of like the tradition in British theater that they were reacting against in that space and in that company, but that we tend to think of as more like, you know, quote unquote, good Shakespeare acting is relying entirely on the text to convey everything. Whereas they were trying it. I mean, it seemed like they were trying things to, to see if they would work and without really caring whether they were working because the trying as part of the process is the more important thing. The process is more important than the result. Yeah, I think, I mean, you make an interesting point too, because you're sort of saying, I think if I'm understanding correctly, that they're, they're sort of behaving as though they have pincher pauses, except they've got giant lines of, they've got giant passages of text that they have to get through. And if you're looking at the way in which the difference between how the fine film is edited, the text is edited compared to how the, the, Donmar production is edited that the Donmar preserves a lot of the long speeches they still cut the scenes down but they don't actually make sure that the actors are only speaking two or three lines at once like two or three lines of their passages are never are often actually quite long and then you have this thing where they're like like Tom Hiddleston's Coriolanus is often even rushing through his speeches where he's talking really quickly and 
that almost doesn't really make sense to me as a Coriolanus who has trouble speaking like words just roll off his tongue too too quickly but as far as that that idea about pausing and, and extra textual things I mean what's different about the fines one is that they turn it into more movie-like dialogue in the sense that you know they have a really long speech and then they pick one line from it that they are gonna that they're gonna keep and they cut everything else and then they really savor that line and they really make it sing in a way that I don't know that it's really happening in the Hiddleston one because they state, you know, they have 10 lines instead of one line. And then overall you get the impression, but they're blurring together in a way that isn't happening in the fines one because they're really bringing out individual words and the rhythm within that, you know, one sentence or that one line. Funnily enough, given all the cuts that the fines production made, I didn't come away feeling that it had lost anything essential to the story, which I know I think that you didn't like the cuts as much, Alex. Actually, no, I really liked the cuts in the Fines one. Um, I mean, you can tell that there are cuts in the sense that if you think about it, you know that people don't speak in this snap, snap, snap in Shakespeare, that they have longer passages. But I think the cuts in the Fines one work for a lot of reasons. Um, One is that when you're translating any kind of play to film, you have to change the way people are speaking that, you know, people don't actually speak in complete sentences and long passages the way they do in theater. And so when you're in film, you actually do have to cut down on that. And so I think that's a really effective way of doing it. And it's the same thing that Branna does in Much Ado About Nothing. And I think also because they're not trying to race through large passages that then they can make those lines sing. And so you come away really remembering, you know, what is the line? I'm not going to remember it now. The the deeds monstered. Pardon? Oh, I won't have my nothings monstered. Is that is that yeah. the line? Yes. Yeah. I mean, when Fine says that, that is just really, really, it really, really sings. And not that there's anything wrong with how Tom Hiddleston says that. I think it's totally fine. It's just that it's buried within a bunch of other words that you can't come out quoting. I'm not sure that it would have stood out to me if I hadn't seen Ray Fine's deliver the same the same speech. Well, it's not a speech the way he does it. It's just a line of dialogue. I mean, and it kind of speaks to the importance of when you're making a film, no matter what the source text is. I mean, it helps to approach the adaptation as a screenwriter rather than in, in a sense of like, we need to, you know, uh, convey, it's like, you know, we cannot disturb the holy text, you know? And so the, the, the sort of edits and adaptations here and there, you know, are a necessity really. Yeah. I wonder if one of the things that I'm sort of hesitating with how they didn't edit things in the, in the Josie Rourke production is one, because the cast is actually quite young and two, because it's in a small space that the sort of excessively excessive theatrical nature of having big, long such speeches maybe just doesn't work as well with that speech and with that space and that cast. And I wonder if it might have worked better, especially given the energy of the young cast, if they had significantly shortened the speeches so that there was more of that snap, snap, quick back and forth. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that you can do in theater and arguably should. And it's one of the reasons why people almost never do entirely unexpurgated Shakespeare is that, I mean, you got to cut somewhere sometimes. I mean, you know, it's like even in the best, even in, in his best plays, I mean, there's stuff that it's like, maybe you should cut this. Because I did, I was in an unexpurgated Othello one time that like with intermission included was over five hours long. And that's just like too much time to be sitting in a theater. I mean, it's a great play, but 
still, damn, that's like that's that's too much time. Right. I guess I think that the difference, though, in the way they cut is that in the in the Rourke production, if there were, say, 20 set speeches, they they made they had three set speeches. And then if each of those set speeches was, say, 15 lines, they were 10 lines. So you still had a bunch of long speeches, but there were a lot fewer of them and they were a little shorter. Whereas I think what Ray Fiennes did is, you know, if there were 10 different times at which people speak, there are still 10 different times at which people speak, but now they say one line of dialogue instead of 10. So like they're both cutting. It's just, I think it, you don't necessarily notice the cuts if you don't know the play as well in the Rourke production, because it still sounds like Shakespeare in the sense that it's long passages. But then in the fines one, it sounds more like naturalistic dialogue because it's shorter. And then if you think about it, you're like, Shakespeare never wrote speeches that are that short constantly. But I think that's fine. You don't need this. You don't need 10 jokes or, you know, you don't have to say the same thing 10 ways, especially if you're you've got a film and a set where you can make those things vivid in a different way that you don't actually have to repeat it three times just to make sure someone heard it. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I dug the rapid fire, uh, you, you know, cuts of the uh, fines version, but I think that would be uh, disastrous on stage. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I'm not overly familiar with the original text, so I can't speak to uh, any, uh, you know, particular cuts uh, that they did in the Rourke version. But I, I, I think the, uh, I, I think you need something to be able to bite into, uh, you know, in a stagier version. Man, I, I think they did that credibly enough. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't think that it was bad. I think they did it. I think that they do need to keep the speeches longer in the stage version. I just wonder if they're still too long. And maybe that's part of what you're experiencing. I don't know, because you found Deborah Finley's delivery stagey. And I wonder if part of that is because she has to deliver these long speeches. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm willing to, to at least put some of that down to that. Uh, I, I, I think uh, smarter cuts certainly could have been made for her character since it's, you know, kind of a linchpin of the whole production. Uh, but, uh, yeah. I'm curious, Jeremy, did you find any of the other acting too stagey in that production or was it just her that stuck out for you? I, 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 stagey is, you know, poor word choice on my part, but, uh, I, I, I think the, the, the manner, uh, in which she was, uh, you, you know, pulling things over the top, performing for her son. Uh, I, I, I just didn't find it credible. I didn't find any act, other actor was able to uh, pick up on it the same way. Obviously, there were, uh, you know, other performances that were, you know, over the top. You know, the the the, uh, the plebes uh, and, you know, uh, the, the, the tribunes. But uh, I, I felt those were more purposeful. That There was at least a better operating idea behind them. You know, the... the, the uh, you know, the, the plebes were, you know, politically impulsive, you know, and the, uh, the, the tribunes were, uh, uh, you, you, you know, schemers, comedy, comedic relief, you know. Uh, so I felt those at least played better than her choices, which were just uh, kind of uh, tossing out into the air there. And I don't know how many cuts could have really helped with what they were going for there. Okay, so one thing I want to know about is going back to the the chairs in the scene in the scenes where um, everybody where Menenius comes and then um, Volumnia and Virgilia arrive to um, 
talked talked Coriolanus into not invading Rome. In both productions, um, they're both staged in very similar ways and that Coriolanus is sitting on a chair and then they're sort of hovering around. Well, I guess they're a bit further away from him in the fines one that they're, but they're sort of hovering around his chair and, and trying to convince him. Um, and they're standing like behind him, almost like part of an honor guard, you know? Right. And in, in the fines one, the chair plays like a throne. It's a barber's chair, but it, it looks very much like a throne. I don't know that I really get that sense of a throne in the in the Josie Rourke one, but you do get a sense of him being in a position of power by sitting there and having people hover around him. And I guess I'm wondering, what did people think about how those are both staged? And is it a coincidence that they were both staged that way? Are they ripping it off? Well, I, I think what you're saying about uh, how uh, the 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 Hiddles version played a, 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 a touch more, you know, like a throne. Uh, we, uh, we, oh, I the, meant the Fines one was more like a throne, not the Hiddles one. Oh, really? Really? Uh, yeah. I, see, I, I I felt in the Fines version he felt more surrounded. He, he, there was more power, but you got the sense of uh, the walls closing in on him, whereas. I don't feel like the backdrop was prominent enough in the Hiddleston version that, uh, so, so I, I felt the, the emphasis was more on him and the power he had in that scene. Whereas uh, in the Fines version, I was just noting how it was being taken away from him, how, how the things were, you know, closing in. Wow. I had the total opposite view because I think in the, the Hiddleston one, Virgilia actually sits on his lap, doesn't she? And they make out and his mother comes and like kneels down right in front of him. But in the in the finds one, there's like this giant box, sort of like square box around him. And not not like a physical one, but like a, a an invisible barrier. And so even when Volumnia and Virgilia are are begging him, they're really quite far. I think they're several meters away from him. They start out that and, way, but Volumnia goes right up to him and, like, puts her hands on his knees. Okay, right. Yeah. Um, and, but but because it starts out that way, you get that sense of, like, separation that would make it a throne. And it's also, like, a, a bigger chair. I mean, it's a barber's chair, but it's, you know, it has some, it takes up space in a way that the chair in the, the work one doesn't because it's the same you know, flimsy chair that everybody's sitting on. That there's nothing special about that chair. So I got more a sense of there being a throne in the in the Fines one than in the the Hiddleston one. I have to say that I agree with both of you, in the sense that I agree with Alex that it feels a lot more like a throne in the Fines production. But but I I agree with Jeremy in the sense that you get this the sense that there's a lot of power in that room, but you're not sure which way it's going to go. It could be his to command, or it could be jaws that are about to snap shut on him. Yeah, no, I I agree with that, because you also get to see Gerard Butler more in the fines one, where he's like, I'm not sure that I like that Coriolanus is taking over and that everybody's listening to him, that he's in this position of power, almost because it is an obvious position of power, that it's there's more to rebel against, whereas it's a bit more ambiguous with the other um, Ophidius, is that that what you're getting at? Uh, sort of. I disagree. I actually disagree a little bit with that interpretation because of how each Ophidius delivers the line reading. I was moved with all in that scene because 
In the Fines version, Gerard Butler delivers that line as like, yeah, I was moved. I was genuinely moved. Doesn't mean I'm not going to kill you, but I was genuinely moved. Whereas in the Josie Rourke production, he kind of goes, I was moved with all, you know. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. And I think one of the things that's interesting about the Fines production for that is there's a lot of respect, I think, between Coriolanus and Ophidius. That doesn't mean it's going to get in the way with ultimately what they have to do for their power or their honor or whatever that, you know, even when Coriolanus, when he kills Coriolanus, it's like they both know that that's what's going to happen. He's come to his death. You know, they, they, there's nothing ambiguous about what's going to happen there, but they still sort of, you know, there's still respect in a way that um, I think sort of speaking of the childishness, I think the Aphidius in the, in the work one is a bit more childish. He's like, I don't like, I don't like the Coriolanus is getting attention. And, and then at the same time, that Coriolanus's death is much more brutal, almost just the way he's hung. And then they, you know, slice him in a way that, you know, they, they, Ray finds his Coriolanus has to die. They have to kill him. They do, but it's not, and they're going to fight, but it's not the same kind of almost like ritualized death. Uh, yeah, th- th- there's something. Yeah, th- th- I think I think in the, uh, the Hiddleston version, there's something more spurned coming from Ophidius, and it, 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 it's more personal. Whereas, uh, you know, th- th- there are obligations of honor and statecraft, and you know, this is the way the world is that you know runs through the Fines version. One thing that's really interesting about the ending to me is uh, th- th- how how the bodies are treated very differently in the end. How the 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 Hiddleston's body becomes on display as this grand object, you know, the, the, this this tableau of murder and blood, you know. Whereas uh, the the Fines version really highlights uh, just in a very sharp way just how disposable his body is, you know, how it's he's he's been used up, you know, it's been it's now it's just in, you know there it's garbage, yeah. That's a really good point. And also the fact that that goes goes with that is that Fines gets killed in the middle of nowhere on a road. Like he's outside of Rome and he, it's it's almost like a back alley killing. And then his body is just there um, in a way that the Hiddleston one. I mean, basically what you just said, that he's an object for display. Um, and it's less about, well, you know, he served his purpose and he screwed up and everybody's getting rid of him that you don't get that as much with Hiddleston it's like oh look we killed him isn't this this great and it's kind of I mean I wonder going thinking about the Menenius death I wonder if the Menenius death one of the problems with it is maybe that because they treat Ray Fiennes's body as so disposable by having somebody else die you don't get the same sense of not just that he's the only one dead, but that he's just so disposable because other people die. Uh, yeah, the, 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 there's something in the Fines version, where, you, you know, the Menenius cheats things. Uh, it, it, the Hiddleston version, while his death is grander, you at least get the sense that the world, uh, I don't know, the, the Menenius suicide just, I, it, it, it's just so counter to uh, what the Fines version is going for. Uh, as far as what it's saying, uh, you, you, the, the, I, I think the Fines version would, would have been more suited to be able to say that life goes on without him. Whereas the uh, you, you know Hiddleston version implies something more significant and permanent and monumental to his death. So that to me is where the Menenius bit really clashes. But uh, you, you know, in terms of the way 
the bodies are treated. That's a point that I hadn't even thought about, Jeremy. But it also relates back to what you were saying about the Ophidius, the the portrayals of Ophidius, in the sense that, like, Gerard Butler's Ophidius had, you got a sense of personal power from the man. Whereas um, the other Ophidius, and we literally, we don't even know that actor's name. None of us cared enough to look it up. You don't really get a sense that he's a genuine rival, you know? And so at the end, when they hang Coriolanus's body up for display, it's like they literally have to use murdering Coriolanus as a way for Ophidius to bolster his power. Okay, just as a counter, I do actually think that the guy who plays Ophidius, whose name I don't know, <laughs> um, is a good actor. I think I think he's a uh, does a lot of theater work. He's in um, Kenneth Branagh's Winter's Tale, and is actually quite quite good in that. So I, I don't want to dismiss him outright. I think mm, whatever our problems with him are might have more to do with casting and direction. Fair enough. I mean, the point I was trying to make is not that guy's a terrible actor and more, you don't get the sense that he's a genuine rival for Coriolanus, right? When Coriolanus says he is a lion, I am proud to hunt. You think, why? No, he's more of a fanboy. <laughs> yeah, him falling into line feels more preordained. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I, I, I mean, so I, I can see why the character's internal logic he feels played and humiliated, uh, but there's no grandness to it. You know, there's there, there, so. yeah. It's one of one of the casting choices that definitely um, works better in the film. With uh, you know, it's a, it has its pros and cons, but Butler's just like more undeniably the undeniability of his presence uh, aids to his essaying of Ophidius than than in the stage version. And as we mentioned earlier, it doesn't hurt that Gerard Butler is like a huge guy. Um, yeah, that definitely ties into what I was talking about too. Yeah, is that he's just like he's large in 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 many ways. Yeah. What what do you folks think about how they recorded the Donmar production? Um, how does it work as a piece of recorded theater? Do you feel like you got a sense of the production? Do you feel like it's alienating? I mean, obviously, recorded theater is not the same as being in the theater, but how bad was that alienation here, or how close to being there did you feel it was? Well, obviously, I have thoughts on this, but uh, yeah, but the, the, I think that they did the, the the videotaping as well as they could have. Like, a lot, I, I thought that there were, I mean, just the nature of that space is that there are a lot of interesting places to mount cameras. And so that was cool. And, you know, they managed to edit to the degree that they could. But there's there's a there's a wall, an impermeable wall that one runs into when recording theater, because, you know, you know, talk about sometimes people they are like, how is that difference uh, different from making a movie version of a play? And I mean, it's because fundamentally live theater is being staged for the audience and a film is being staged for the camera. And it's, and it's just the, when you putting cameras into live theater is, you know, it's like, it's just, it's not the, the same thing because the cameras happen to be where they happen to be. They're not at the ideal place to convey what the production 
is trying to do. And there's just no way that they can. I mean, it's, you know, it makes film, you know, videotaped theater is useful as a study guide, but it completely, it obviates the power of live theater as entertainment because it strips it completely of the visceral nature of an act which is specifically being staged for the audience in that space rather than if I keep going I'm just going to be more redundant but I mean that's basically like what that's the sum total of my thoughts on that that it's you know it can still be entertaining it's just that there's a point past which it is that it can never be as and uh, dot 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 jumping off of that a little bit one of the things that we talked about in the cumbercast about the hamlet production was that the the filming was terrible but one of the things that i really liked about the filming here is they did not overuse the close-up like you're correct danny in that like you'll never get the same experience because a stage production is not made to be filmed the filming is incidental but I feel like they did put a lot of thought into trying to capture as much of the stage as possible so that you felt like you were, you were getting the same amount of information that the audience was. I I think, I guess one of the things I wonder is what spaces or stages are most, are best for recorded theater because I've seen recorded theater be done really badly. Um, I actually think the NT live recording of the Macbeth that Kenneth Branagh did was awful. And that's partly because this, so they did it in a deconsecrated church. Um, It was a really long stage. They had people on either side of the stage and it was, the stage was basically like a long hallway alley and it had like walls on either side and, and then the dirt on the inside. And so the problem with it was that you could never get a sense of the space because you would only ever see part of it. And then they chose to do a ton of close-ups on top of that. So you got stage acting in close-up where it was clearly playing for, you know, people quite far away because they had a long stage. And then it was a long aisle that you never really got to see the whole of. And then the problem I would think with like proscenium stages sometimes, which is what the the Cumberbatch Hamlet is, is that as soon as you you get on the stage close to an actor, you know that you're not really watching, that it's not really theater that you're watching because you know that you would never be able to get on the stage with them. And I think, I I mean, I think it works in the Donmar quite well. And I think one of the reasons for that is, one is that the audience surrounds the stage. It's a stage where you have audience members on three sides of the stage. And two, it's a small enough space that it's already quite intimate, that you already basically get a close-up if you're in the back row of the balcony at the Donmar. You can see facial expressions. So the acting is already going to be smaller because it's a smaller intimate space, which is more appropriate for film acting. And you, the audience is already kind of surrounding them. So then when you move the camera to get closer, I think it's like not as jarring. And also the stage isn't that big. So you don't end up with a camera like in the middle of the stage. And like, why is somebody there? The one last thing I'll add, which is basically what she said, but with more detail is you really get a sense of the blocking in the Donmar in the filming of the Donmar Coriolanus. And I know it's harder to give a sense of blocking when you're filming a larger stage, but we've seen a lot of productions that just don't try. And so. Yeah. Like Hamlet. 
ironically though i mean it sounds like we were kind of saying i mean and i certainly agree with this and this was danny was saying is that the blocking and the donmar is actually kind of confused and that it might work for individual scenes but as far as getting together a larger meaning or having a real purpose it doesn't really seem to be there so it's kind of funny that in this one we can actually see the blocking but it doesn't necessarily give us more information um, whereas, say, in the Benedict Cumberbatch Hamlet, we were complaining that we couldn't see the blocking. So we don't know if it was any good or not, but you, you, it was just, like, information missing. See, one of the things I, 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 I dug about the Hiddleston version, despite the fact you're right, that it you, you, that they're they're generating their own meaning piece by piece as they go along. But I think I, I think that helped create a little energy, even if the, the, the big ideas behind the production were a, a little more empty, you know? I, I, I think the fact that they had to be reinventing themselves from sequence to sequence at least created a, uh, you know, a sense of variety and a sense of crackle from act to act. So, you, you know, I'm more in favor of it there, you know? Okay, related question. Do you think Coriolanus works better on stage or on film? I I, I would say stage. Yeah, uh, I, I I think in a film, you're. You, I I I just think that the, the the character is too opaque to work on a you know film. He he's he's never going to give you the things you need in a, a filmic version, despite Fine's performance, which was obviously fantastic but it's it's always going to be a touch more idiosyncratic on screen i I don't know i i i just think there's a lack of access to the character that makes it work better on something like uh, on stage where supporting characters can help flourish provoke change the energy but yeah i mean my take on it is sort of a cop-out and but it's uh going to an idea of you know kind of originalist but it's a it's a piece that was written for the stage and it thus inextricably works best on the stage because in order to make the film version that you know the you know Ray Fiennes and John Logan did an excellent job of adapting it it was still the amount of pairing that had to be done to get it to what it was for the film version, essentially made it a film that utilized dialogue from Coriolanus rather than William Shakespeare's Coriolanus. And it's just the nature of film as a medium is such that it's the director's and the screenwriter's version of it rather than Shakespeare's version of it. So that might not be the strongest point in the world, but it's the one that I'm sort of sticking with just because of the nature of the differences between the medium of stage and film that it works better uh, better on stage. I mean, I guess part of what I'm wondering is because, I, I mean, as you mentioned, you you pretty much never do Shakespeare uncut because you could end up with a five hour Othello. And so I guess I'm part of what I'm wondering is, are there particular Shakespeare plays that would work better on film? And is there a reason that Coriolanus either does work well on film or doesn't work well on film? Like, I think... I mean, there's been two really great, I mean, I have problems with the Whedon one, but good films of um, Much Ado About Nothing, and they do cut the text, but I guess I still feel like you're very much seeing it. And I wonder if Coriolanus, I mean, is it just that Shakespeare, you think, is, you know, it's written for the stage and it should be on stage? Or 
is Coriolanus in particular a play that you think for particular qualities and it works better on stage? I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute here, or possibly just express an unpopular opinion. But I think Coriolanus works really well on screen. I don't know if better, but certainly way better than a lot of Shakespeare's do, partly because Coriolanus is such an opaque character, right? He is not super expressive the way a Hamlet or a Macbeth is super expressive. And so on screen with the introduction of the close-up, I feel like you can get um, a more granular idea of how that character is being performed and of the subtleties of that character. Yeah, I think I agree with you, especially the the, the close-up. Um, and I think, I guess I don't, I don't have a problem with the way that Ray Fiennes has adapted it for the screen, that it doesn't feel like it's not Coriolanus to me anyway. And maybe that's partly because the line readings are so great and the acting is so great that, I mean, it is an adaptation for the screen and I think he does it he really uses the conventions of cinema to really bring out the story. Unlike say Chrysalis Macbeth, which is like, we're going to just make a movie and people are going to speak the lines, but we're not really sure what they're saying. Basically, um, he hated Chrysalis Macbeth. Yeah, a little bit. Well, not as much as you did. But then on the other hand, then the question is, you know, what is the value of filming it? Because perhaps one of the value, part of the value of filming it is, you know, we get to see Vanessa Redgrave and, Ray finds in the same scene and we get to see these really, really well done line readings and you're not distracted in some ways by the long speeches and you get to really savor what dialogue does remain. Okay. Uh, that's the end of this episode. Um, I'm Alex Heaney, the editor in chief of the seventh row. You can find me on Twitter at B West cineast B W E S T C I N E A S T E. I've got three guests with me today. Um, we've got Danny I'm Danny Bose, film, theater, and TV critic. I can be found on Twitter at at bybose, B-Y-B-O-W-E-S. And our two Canadians from opposite sides of the country, uh, Jeremy? Yes, this is uh, Jeremy Mongeau. You can find me on Twitter, but I don't know if you should. <laughs> and I'm Mary Angela Rowe, editor-at-large of The Seventh Row. You can find me at lapsedvictorian on Twitter. That's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Check back next week for a new episode discussing new Shakespeare productions. To keep up with the latest episodes, don't forget to subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-row.com. <laughs>